Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to another edition of Conversations with Dr. Cowan and Friends. And today I am I, very honored to have uh, Kelly Brogan with me today. And people know, I think, a lot about Kelly. And the way uh, I like to do this, if you're okay, Kelly, is I, I, I know a lot of people say, you know, you went to school at, at MIT, and that's all as far as I can remember anyways. <laughs> so, that's the part of the interview where I normally take a nap, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So I don't like that too, so much. I would rather say, uh, and it, I must admit I can get a little long-winded, but I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, how are, what, what is important to me about our interaction? And then hopefully that can lead to a whole lot of other things. Beautiful. So, uh, people probably know that I've uh, written a bunch of books, one on heart, then one on autoimmune disease and vaccines, and then eventually one on cancer. And uh, then we wrote this book on the contagion myth. And during all this time, I had a little thought in my head that the one book I do not want to write is anything to do with psychiatry. And I, I, I just never liked psychiatry. I don't know why. I didn't like it in medical school. I didn't like it in my residency. And I just really didn't want to have anything to do with it. In fact, most of the time in my uh, career, if somebody came with a psychiatric problem, I just said, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with this. Go somewhere else. Uh, now, I wouldn't say it's that I knew nothing about psychiatry because I, I certainly was interested and for instance, I read Thomas Zass, The Myth of Mental Illness. I read Mad in America by Whitaker, I think it was. And I don't even know if you've read this one. It's, it was one of my favorite books of all time. And it, this is where I really separate uh, people who know this field. It was called How to Become a Schizophrenic. Has not made it on my list yet, but should it? It's, it was a fabulous book because this this guy who is uh, I think he's mid thirties or forties he was a active schizophrenic but he he could trace his life so that when he was a child he started to sort of act crazy and then people said you're just like Uncle Fred and then he liked Uncle Fred so he started acting more and more like Uncle Fred and then a lot of things happened. And then it quickly it became out of control for him. Like he could no longer manage the situation. And then he got put in all kinds of stuff. And it was very interesting from a very aware, cogent guy looking back on his life, literally the steps that he got into this. Uh, and it really was a beautiful book. Um, the other thing that all these books told me, and I don't know if you've looked into this too, is that in the 1860s, uh, there was a thing called moral therapy, mm -hmm. which was run by the Quakers. And they essentially took the worst of the worst people. And these were people with schizophrenia and all kinds of mental illness. And they put them in a home uh, out in the country. And as far as I remember, they had only two rules. One, is you had to wear clean clothes and the other you had to take a warm bath every night <laughs> and they had a remission rate and a cure rate of about 80 percent published and all that 
And then eventually the psychiatrist got a hold of them and they started with their lobotomies and all the rest of it. And then schizophrenia became an incurable disease. And those things really hit home. Uh, but again, I wanted nothing to do with it. And then I think it was maybe a year ago or so, I read your book and I think I even told you this. I said to myself something like, thank God I don't have to write this stupid book. <laughs> because somebody wrote the book that I would have written if I had wanted to write it. And so now if anybody says, well, don't you know anything about, about psychiatry? I say, no, just read Kelly's book. It's fine. <laughs> so, so like that, the most awesome backwards compliment of all time. <laughs> <laughs> right. That is a backwards compliment. No, it's excellent. No, really seriously, it's an honor that you feel that way. So that, that's really... Um, that wasn't how I first heard of you, but that was, that was really where I, I really knew that I just did not have to write this book. I don't want to write this book. I don't want anything to do with it. And more importantly, most importantly, I don't need to. So again, welcome. Now, I think the thing that I would like, with, first of all, is there anything about that that <laughs> you would? You know, it, I think your soul was probably you know protecting itself you know it was like your soul was withering away from this incredibly um distorted field you know the psychiatry i mean we're gonna see even uh the lengths that it can take us to potentially as a society and, and a collective in the, in the future uh defining what is normative and you know becoming a force of biopolitic uh, but yeah, it's interesting that you weren't interested in it um, because you and I share, I think, the, the deepest sensibility that merges all of the kind of seemingly disparate fields of awareness, right? Like I, I think you and I see how these things have commonalities, right? So it's, it's not enough. That's why you've written books on, you know, varied subjects in, in medicine because you see the common thread of what um, is bereft about the dominant model and and how to revivify it you know with spiritualized medicine but psychiatry you know it's you you know it's the the medicine of the soul right? it's literally psychiatrist means doctor of the soul imagine that did you ever hear the word soul in your medical training because i didn't hear it one time not one time and i was just going to say that it, it's the medicine of the soul or the experience of the of the human being and yet you have this very strange situation where the psychiatrists don't believe in a soul. That's right. And not only don't they believe in it, they're adamantly opposed to even the mention of it. And literally, the little experience I had are derisive of anybody who even mentions the word, as if, how dare you? Uh, meanwhile, they, they have a very difficult time proving anything to do with their field, you know, so... So the, the, then it brings up the question, how does an MIT graduate, I, you probably did graduate at some point. <laughs> it did, um, eeks through. Yeah, uh, how, how did you end up uh, coming to the understanding that actually how people live and how they feel and how they, their soul functions may actually have something to do with their health? Which seems like a great. I mean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 
I think that I'm a good example of, again, what's going on on mass right now in, in the realm of trauma-based mind control, right? Because I, and I'm fundamentally like you and like so many of, of those around us, an empathic person, right? So I worked on a suicide hotline at MIT where there are a number of completed suicides every year for a number of complex reasons, most of which are sociocultural um, and psychospiritual. And I was so um, troubled, you know, and so unable to handle the distress that I felt at encountering other people's distress that I was very attracted to this idea that we have the solution, right? We've already solved the problem of what's wrong with, you know, uh, humanity and how to end human suffering. And it's called the antidepressant. You know, you just got to get this person into that psychiatrist's office and I will have fulfilled my part as, you know, a savior. And I totally uh, became a dyed in the wool supporter of the pharmaceutical model and the symptom management model. Moreover. Just stop you there for a minute because I, I love to, to clarify what people say. So it sounds like the, the real first inkling for you was your own distress at hearing other people's distress. Correct. And I wanted to, to stop that, <laughs> fix that, right? I wanted to fix their distress, but of course, it's ultimately fixing mine. Yeah. Did, were you aware of your own distress at that point? Not at all. I have been reborn about eight times <laughs> since, that, since that stage of my life. And I, I look back with great compassion on all of the stages, including the one that, you know, uh, specialized at the fellowship level in prescribing to pregnant and breastfeeding women. You know, I, I look at that woman and I, I do feel there's karma. I'm, I'm in the process of, of reconciling uh, and burning off, so to speak. But I, I look at that woman I, and I think she was, she was doing the best she could, you know, uh, with what she had, that Maya Angelou quote, you know, when you know better, you do better. And at that time, no, I, hadn't, I had no idea that I, it's like, you don't know what you don't know. I didn't, wasn't aware that I had piles of trauma unexamined, that I was operating from my defenses only, and that no one had ever taught me how to feel. And, you know, I, I sort of see life as two halves, right? So it's like, you know, your, your, your trauma responses bring you to your late 30s, early 40s. And then those very defensive structures and those, those um, you know, reactive patterns start to cause you a lot of distress and start to become the cause of your pain. And you can either point fingers all over the place and, and play the victim forever, or you can say, all right, how do, I, how do I grab the steering wheel of my own car? And you know, those of us who begin to start to do this, this work of becoming who we really are, and of course, ironically, who we've always been, you know, it's gnarly. It's, it's not a, a sexy process. Um, but that began for me only a few, you know, I don't know, 11 years ago. Um, and really only about five years ago. So no, I, that, that, you know, teenager, 20 something year old had, had no idea. Uh, Got it. So you, so, so there we go. So we jumped over a, a number of steps here. So no idea, but, but something was, was stirring in you that this doesn't feel right to experience the distress of the person. And, and, but I would, contend and correct me again if this is different for you what what that was for you was your own personal experience of distress yes. you know we we think it's the person out there 
But really what happens for us is we feel the stress. And so then we, we try to reconcile it. So then you, you, but it sounds like the way you were trying to reconcile it first was get them into, you know, Prozac. But so then what happens? Yeah, so I actually went to medical school to become a psychiatrist. Wow, uh, yeah, I didn't really think it through, you know, all the anatomy and memorization and all these things that would have to come before I would have the, you know, opportunity. And, uh, and I had identified as a feminist, um, you know, at that actually for seemingly my whole life. And so I was very interested in, in helping women. Um, but I was a, a, you know, a victim oriented feminist at that time and very much um, entrenched in the egalitarian model of, you know, like I can do what a man can do bleeding kind of, kind of energy. And I thought that I wanted to do OBGYN for a little while uh, because that's the women's field, right? But I, um, I found that it was such an impossibly miserable lifestyle that there was no way I was going to subject myself to that. So I specialized in basically women's health psychiatrists, reproductive um, psychiatry. And it wasn't until I, um, I had my own first baby that I did naturally, um, not because as you can surmise, I was some kind of like a bohemian hippie or anything like that. But because I became, I had such a know-it-all uh, program, you know, and I didn't trust my uh, OB at the time. And I wanted to do the research. I was very, always very comfortable on PubMed and reading papers. And, yeah. and I started to research these obstetrical interventions because I wanted to know what I thought. And that's when I learned about obstetrics and the fact that, you know, it's all consensus medicine. And at less than 30% of gold standard obstetrics has any evidence base whatsoever, which of course you and I know now reverberates throughout all of medicine. Right. Um, but I, you know, I opted out of all interventions because of that. And that's when I started to research um, vaccinology, if you will, uh, because of course we have to make a decision about the HEPI vaccine on the day of birth. And interestingly, I had, as a consultation liaison, it's called psychiatrist, I was charged as a fellow. So I'm a kid basically, right? I was charged with- Yeah, how many years ago are we talking about now? So this was like in 2008, 2009. Oh, not that long ago. Yeah, relatively speaking, you know, I was in the larval stage of my, you know, clinical acumen. And here I am charged with determining whether a, a, a new mom has the clinical capacity to reject the hep B vaccine. So, so the obstetrician would call a consultation I'd be the fellow on call. I'd go over and I would have to speak to her to determine whether she has actually the, the right on a clinical level, not a legal level, to, to, to reject that vaccine for her, her newborn. Talk yeah. about karma. Okay. I need to burn off, right? On what basis would she reject it? So because, you know, medicine is a, ultimately a monotheistic ideology, right? Any yeah. departure from that especially if she didn't have any intellectual, you know, um, reasoning, and it was just kind of, let's say her gut said, I don't want this, would be potential grounds for me to assess her as not having the capacity, meaning not having the cognitive capacity, um, you know, to having some sort of distortions in her thought process, and that I had, you know, the power to determine that she actually didn't have um, the ability to reject this intervention. Now, I've always been libertarian leaning. Um, so even though, you know, I worked at Bellevue, I trained at Bellevue in New York where there are 13 locked 
psychiatric units and and i'm always kind of you know i've always had issues with the man right so even though i was you know very much complicit in my own brainwashing i i never really erred on the side of stripping rights yeah. just because i had this incoherence right like same with my feminism it's just i was like two parts of totally uh polarized entities and of course it wouldn't be for many more years that i would begin to to reconcile those parts but you know like so many doctors the reason that i started to question what i was taught and what i preached and what i propagated was because i didn't want to be a patient and when i was diagnosed postpartum with hashimoto's on a routine uh physical you know and of course the symptoms i had you know brain fog and and i was double booking patients and like forgot my pin number and all this hair loss and weight fluctuations and all this stuff i just chalked up to new motherhood but when i was diagnosed there was a, a something rose inside me and said i'm not i'm not taking synthroid for the rest of my life i know that a lot of the women i treat feel horrible you know for the rest of their life it doesn't work and i'm not doing it so i uncharacteristically went to a naturopath and the rest basically is history because i put my uh hashimoto's on paper into remission in the space of a year. And uh, at the same time, I was given Whitaker's book, um, Anatomy of an Epidemic. And just, you know, the colleague was like, what do you think of this? This is kind of, hmm. And I read it because I already, the rage portal had already been opened. <laughs> and I, yeah. Time, I you're, you're a practicing psychiatrist, right? Yeah. You, you're done with the, uh, telling women they're they're crazy if they don't want to have B. that that's in your past um and you're you're on your own practicing sort of conventional psychiatry mm -hmm. and the, this was right when i started my private practice all that all this went down and so it was right around the time i was just growing it just kind of putting a toe in finishing my fellowship and when i when i saw you know that i could resolve this potentially chronic and recidivistic illness i wasn't celebrating i wasn't excited i was enraged enraged literally and it was like you know i took my joan of arc sword out of its sheath and i was on a mission and i you what know was the rage I, about or rage towards what it was um indignation that i had because my training and i'm you know i imagine we all have this sob story was was hellacious experience it was military level um abuse i mean it was horrible experience i mean not just the sleeplessness because we were in the old model of call and you know yeah. just so not only that but just the hierarchical power dynamics were so sick uh, and I was, of course, always in trouble. Um, and the, the people who, yeah, it was just very insidiously um, traumatic. And so I, I went through all of that to learn a pile of lies. That's how, you know, what, what the story I was telling myself at the time. And, you know, I probably was sick because of my, of course, not true entirely, but because of my training and what did I, you know, what else didn't they tell me, you know, because I've been paying attention and I've been reading the studies and, and if there are 16 studies in this book I've never heard of that speak about the iatrogenic nature of this treatment, that literally these medications are causing and perpetuating exactly what they purport to resolve. What? 
These are non-industry funded studies that for some reason never crossed my desk. It was just this total righteous indignation that fueled a tremendous amount of unlearning and, and relearning and a kind of mercenary, like I'm gonna crack the code of human health, you know, kind of energy. Um, and so I started the process of learning about first functional medicine, which for me was a very similar um, vibration, I guess, although I didn't, wouldn't have used the word at the time, uh, to conventional medicine. It was very, you know, in my experience of it, it was very fastidious, very like, here's what's wrong with you on paper and all your amino acids that are off and you got to take all these supplements. And right. I just felt um, like there had to be something easier, uh, cheaper, <laughs> and, you know, faster. I don't know, because I, I saw a lot of patients getting stuck in the functional medicine world. Um, and so that's essentially when I started to protocolize, if you will, like my experience of health reclamation. And, you know, it, it was initially really just about food. And then these other layers of detox and, you know, contemplative practice or meditation and, you know, the psycho-spiritual journey of, uh, you know, again, um, understanding who it is that you are. Was it also about psychiatry then and thyroid or did, did just started going, what it about heart disease? What about infections so-called? And what about this? That's a great question. Well, it really started with vaccines. Um, and, and learning about immunology, which is just vaccinology, of course. Um, but I, I tried to learn a bit about the little, <laughs> you know, that we know about the immune system. Um, and that was, at, at, I should mention too, at that time in my practice, I had two patients, this was the double flu shot season, and I had two patients who had second trimester stillborns which, you know, to my mind is still one, it's gotta be one of the most traumatic um, experiences a woman can have, you know, to birth, um, you know, a baby who's passed. And, and they, I, I was prescribing to them um, antidepressants or who knows what, clonopin, who knows. But they had both received the, the double flu shot at uh, a pharmacy. So here my ego was like, I spent hours consenting them and the husband and I know all of the 25,000 cases and there's no teratogenicity data and you know, um, in the registry and, and what is this that she got? This must be it. So that was a, a big red flag for me that also helped to inspire my research. So it was really vaccines were the first thing that I researched and then it was um, psychiatry that I, I dove into. But of course, there's so, um, psychiatry falls through your fingers, right? Like you said, like what, what even is the science of psychiatry? Are these valid, um, you know, pathologies? How, do they meet any of the criteria of a disease? Um, and so I started to see, wow, a lot of this is iatrogenesis, not only directly from the psychiatric medications, but from other categories of medications, antibiotics, acid blockers, you know, birth control pills, these all cause psychiatric, quote unquote, symptom, you know, profiles and patterns. And so what's that about? So that led me down other rabbit holes. And essentially, I got to the place where I, I would have been really um, difficult to convince that there's a single pharmaceutical on the market that would ever be worth the risk. And that's kind of, you know, what got me into this, this um, very anti-pharma activist rut <laughs> that I had to claw my way out of. <laughs> when, when was that where you would have finally said those words? 
I, um, I was in the angry activist mode for a number of years. Um, and I started to get to a really dark place. Uh, so this was probably around 2013, 2014. And, you know, that. so yeah, flesh that and I, um, I was so steeped in victimhood, you know, and, and we could talk more about this, you know, and we, and we will, uh, that I so um, parentified this authority structure that I felt uniquely positioned to fight and totally unafraid, to completely unafraid. And, you know, I took out a $2 million life insurance policy at that time, just because it was a matter of potential fact, you know, that I'd go down with this and I really didn't care. Um, I, I hadn't even connected to my own humanity on a level that would preclude um, embracing my mortality for this cause, you know? And so I was in this very kind of disconnected from myself space. I was obsessively researching and writing my book, you know, and then um, I, I met- the whole, the whole thrust of it at that point was essentially the documentation of the harm. Okay. Yes, and, and the fact, the, the untold story of psychotropics specifically, but that leads you to, well, what is the untold story of mental illness? You know, what are these diagnoses? And I, I just, um, I don't know, the safety, the efficacy, and then the model itself. And I, you know, it started speaking around the world, just, uh, and I remember there was a doctor, he's a functional medicine doctor in New York, and he's like, said to me, I gave me unsolicited advice one day, and he's like, Kelly, you know, it doesn't all have to be a fight. You could also try to meet people where they are. That's so disgusting. I was like, you don't get it. <laughs> Integrative <laughs> medicine is just as bad as conventional medicine and, and pick a side, you know? And I was just very polarizing figure and potentially still am, but um, there was a lot of, you know, what many refer to as projection of the shadow, right? That I was engaging in and that I, I was, uh, I didn't even know to, to, to begin that healing process for myself. But that took me up until meeting my mentor, uh, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez. Um, and his untimely death, uh, you know, that had that was shrouded in a lot of this dark energy that I felt um, I was swimming in at the time. And of course, my life was being reconfigured um, because I had, you know, fallen in love with my current uh, partner and, and husband, and that upended everything I thought I was supposed to be experiencing in my postcard life in New England. Uh, and so it was a very tumultuous window but of course that's what the chrysalis is <laughs> you know and when that caterpillar is melting it ain't pretty uh but the imaginal cells take hold and then you know there is there is light at the other end all right let me see if i got this then so we go from a very uh you know it sounds to me like so first of all you're obviously very uh whatever the word is smart or and able to assimilate a lot of inf information. Mm -hmm. You're able to really understand and go through this and what uh, the, this being the, the medical literature and the facts around what is depression, what is mental illness, you know? Is there, I mean, I, I like to say to people, I don't believe in diseases anymore. I, right. I treat stories. And, and if you go into people's stories, you know, two people with rheumatoid arthritis have a completely different story. And interestingly, no other medical system in the world ever believed in diseases. 
they all treat everybody as if, you know, it's whether it's the ancestors or your meridians or something, but it's never this rheumatoid arthritis strep throat kind of thing. That's just a, a construct that we kind of made up. So you were able to see that intellectually um, and really uh, then become an incredible spokesman, it sounds like, for helping other people see that. And yet at the same time, it was a little bit eating away at your soul uh, because it may not have been, well, who knows? Because it was certainly a service to humanity, that's for sure. But whether it was uh, the best thing for you, it doesn't sound like maybe that. So, so that's where you were. So you, you basically blow the whistle on the, to the world saying, this is not what we think it is. Even from, and, and I'm a scientist, you know, I know how to read these things. So you can't say, you know, I had a friend who's he's a Harvard trained internist and he goes into his uh, pediatrician because he doesn't want a vaccine. He's, guy says, well, you don't know how to read science. <laughs> he says, wait a minute, I just spent seven years, you know. Anyways, um, so you can't really say that about you. Uh, so there you are, and then you meet Nick, who I knew a little bit. Um, so what happens there? So that was, again, at this very tender time in my, the deconstruction of the idealized self, right? The, the person that I thought I was here to be, the good daughter, the good wife, I was you know, married, happily married at the time, um, you know, the good mom, and I was going to raise my kids in this beautiful property in New England. And my parent, my mom's Italian, so I was going to move my parents in, and they were going to help me. We're going to recreate the village, and my practice is booming, and everything is is wonderful. And of course, the universe is like tink <laughs> and drops Sayer, you know, into my life, and uh, and it not only um, ushered in uh, a dark night of the soul, but it also was my individuation process. And, and so for anyone not familiar maybe with that phrase, which I wouldn't have been so many years ago, but it's, it's this process of becoming a sovereign adult. And I have not completed that process. It is a work in progress. Um, but I- What do you mean by that? Let's flesh that out for us. Yeah. So it is, it is, according to me, but also what I've learned from many, it's a process of reclaiming all of the aspects of myself that I would judge. And I have been conditioned to judge, right? So my idealized self was the smart, hardworking, never late, always sharp-tongued, you know, um, what else did I value about myself? Um, maybe attractive, um, friendly, fun, you know, all of these idealized characteristics and I would just be swimming all the time, treading water, trying to make sure all those points were represented every day. Am I all these things? Yep, still all these things. Does everybody think so? Yeah, they do. And meanwhile, there's whole subterranean, you know, catacombs of meanness that are just as much a part of me that are lazy, that lie, that cheat, that are jealous, you know, that are, are that ignorant, right? that would hurt another person, right? All of these, all of, and more. Um, there's shame and grief, you know, all this stuff. The, the interesting thing about this is, so you were, I, so those first things that you listed, 
many people, you know, smart, intelligent, always on time, sounds like me in a way, <laughs> hard fun, uh, there's a few that I, w I wasn't, but um, those generally we think of as, quote, good things, Right. but that doesn't sound like what you were seeing. Well, that's exactly even this, this, the language of psychology is that, right? So that is the, what's called the good object, yeah. right? The bad object um, was buried for me. However, for many, many of my patients, they have um, the, the alternate, right? Where the bad object for them is so prominent. All of the things that are disgusting and hateful and shameful about them is so prominent and their good object is buried, uh, right? So, you know, it's, it's two sides of the same coin actually, and one is more adaptive for our materialistic society, which happens to be my model, right? Yeah. But my work in, in many ways um, was, was, I don't know, it's more challenging, but I had to go digging pretty deep to find those and hold those parts of me and still feel like I was me and I was not going to be terminally judged, abandoned, rejected, or, or betrayed, you know, by all of my loved ones. Because that's the story that the child's mind tells is if you let these things out of the cage, you're going to die. Yeah. Right. So it's a superlative, um, you know, sort of languaging even around it. And it's obviously not rational, but th this is what drives our personality. And so when my life started to fall apart and all of these things that were my pillars of stability started to uh, crumble. And then I meet this mentor, right? And the first time um, I had the experience of being in his field, I was at a little gathering in New York and he was speaking about his outcomes. And it was just like time slowed down, literally. I just, it was like, wah, wah. <laughs> and I, I knew that something big and important was happening for me. And he took me on as the only um, clinician he'd ever, MD, he'd ever mentored. And, uh, you know, I had the privilege of being in his office every week and looking through these cases and learning his approach. Um, and he, you know, is one of the only clinicians to have a 27 year practice of putting terminal cancers and degenerative illness into long-term remission. Cause that was always his documentation goal was like, I don't want a stage four pancreatic cancer in five years of remission uh, or 18 months, which is what the conventional model can, can potentially offer on their best day. I want 34 years and here's the meticulously documented, you know, Mayo Clinic confirmed remission of this, you know, particular gentleman. So he, he really was like a Jesus figure to me, way larger than life. Um, and, and, and mostly based on not so much a personal thing, but just the integrity of his work and the, the results that you were literally seeing with, with his work. Yes. So he, you know, posthumously, we published 125 of his long-term outcome cases. He was he was very like, here it is in black and white. He always used to say, match my cases. I challenge anyone to match my cases. But he was very in the model. Um, you know, I always reference these days this Bucky Fuller quote, right? Like, you don't fight the existing system. You create a new one that renders it obsolete. That's a paraphrase. And he was very much in the model. Just one day he's going to get approval, you know, from NIH kind of a thing. And, and I knew that wasn't really me uh, because I had this libertarian rebellious streak already very active in me. And it was also very personal though, because he became a parentified figure for me, like a father figure for me. 
And I had this feeling like, wow, I could, you know, if my license is threatened or whatever happens, like Nick is going to be there for me. He's going to have the answer. He had the answer for everything from, a, you know, a leg cramp to, you know, what do you do if, if you know, you need a kidney transplant or whatever. And right. he passed very suddenly um, in 2015. And it was, wow. still working with him at the time. Yes. Oh, right? very actively. I mean, I communicated with him three hours before he, he died. And um, I, it was, it was, uh, like a, like a, a loss of proportions that are sometimes necessary for people like me to start the true reclamation process. You know, I believe in, in soul contracts and, you know, I do think that we had something, um, where, where in ways his exit emancipated me in a way that I never would have been. And I would have always been like on his, you know, under his white coat. And now, you know, where are the answers? You know, I, and it's so, it's so wild because the day he died, I went to his, I rushed to his apartment. I was almost in like a fugue state. I was really, really not in my body and rushed in. Like, I'm not even a family member. What am I doing there? And I'm, you know, calling the coroner and all this stuff, getting his body transferred, opening up a criminal case is like a whole wild experience. And I'm in his office and um, there's a book. All the books have their, their spines, you know, like facing out. And then there's one book that's face forward. One book, okay. And the book's title was literally, You're in Charge Now. I swear. Wow. I swear. And even at the time I was like, you know, I'd never had experience with a with a, a spirit or a ghost or whatever, you know, through mediumship. That was totally new to me, even this is five years ago. So, but even at that moment, I was like, oh, okay, this seems like it's trying to tell me something. And and it really did um, transform my clinical practice in a way that I was able to see conferred the kinds of outcomes, you know, in my in my realm, um, potentially that he had. And it's because like I took up his energy of faith in the capacity for humans to heal anything, anything, yeah. right? And so then through this very basic, way more basic than his protocol, you saw it. I saw it happen yeah. with my own eyes. And that's when I, I, I began to shift away from the, the, you know, activists are by and large, very wounded individuals. Right, we got a lot of mommy daddy issues, okay? Um, and I started to, to, to shift away from, from that energy of perpetual fighting and even kind of fetishized conflict um, and righteousness. I like to say, you know, feeling right about being wronged. And I shifted toward celebrating what's possible, you know, because my beliefs and yours about health are not limited to a, a privation, right? Like, I don't believe health is the absence of death no, I have a whole, you know, kaleidoscopic world that, that unfolds in beauty when I try to describe what health is, right? There's so much richness there. And, and that is not represented in the fight. The fight is just this, this pendulum that swings back and forth around the issues that ultimately they define, right? So am I going to fight about masks all day or am I going to, am I going to actually, it, you know, potentially remind people what health actually means? Um, and what this process of meaningful self-discovery, as you described in I Treat Stories. I mean, we, we so speak the same language, you know, we came so to it. did you have a moment when you decided, I'm not going to fight anymore? Or did it just... Oh, no, it's still going on. 
<laughs> it's like a really bad habit. I, I was going to sign up. Biting my something. nails or something. Yeah, I was going to sign up for something. <laughs> no, no, it's it's still going on. Um, it's just that I have more awareness that it has a cost and that it's about what I really want, right? So, you know, I reached out to you recently to, to talk about a vision that I have for, you know, like a, a health gratitude day, um, you know, and, and potentially mobilizing an international, you know, sort of reclamation movement that looks a bit different from a normal protest. And maybe it looks more like just a declaration of what we've healed from, right? And what we've learned about our bodies and what we love about natural medicine and, um, and generating the, the field, growing this field of possibility, because that's so attractive to people. There are a lot of people who don't want to fight, right? That's why they're capitulating, because they don't want to fight the big mommy daddy. They'd rather, you know, fight with their neighbor, their peer. And but there are a lot of people who don't want to fight at all. And so they are getting um, subsumed, you know, uh, uh, under the, the polarity or, you know, it's, it's just, um, it's like a hollow desiccated space. Whereas like, you know, the, the, the places we traffic, I mean, look at your garden for its sake, you know, like, and there's so much um, incredible, you know, glory in that. And that is absent from the technocracy, right? So, right. so I'm still working with it. But when I fight, I know it's kind of like, you know, it's like smoking a cigarette behind the, <laughs> behind the house kind of a thing, you know, it's like, kind of, it's like gives me hit because in ways I know better. And there are ways to, to speak, you know, about freedom and choice and personal empowerment that have a little fighting energy that I think are necessary, right? Because I, res I respond to that myself. You know, when I see David Icke out there in London and he's screaming freedom from the, you know, top of his lungs, I cry, you know? So, so that feeds me in a way. But I also know that that energy is, is potentially being like harvested, you know, by those who feed off of conflict and, and division. So it's like, once you know, you kind of can't unknow and then you end up watching yourself in yeah. a way that potentially changes it sounds like then that this happened with uh, when Nick uh, Nick left. He gave you this book to read, and the book um, started this transformation or flipped this switch. And it, it exactly, I know exactly what you mean. Once you know something, you can't unknow it. It just, it's just, you know, it starts to become your your new reality in a way. And so then you. I would even say it's not about celebration of health so much. You're talking about the celebration of life. Yes. So you, you then say, you know, and not to bring Rudolf Steiner into it, but I remember an interesting point he made. Um, he was talk, he was visiting this, this uh, village where handicapped people live. Uh, they're called Camp Hill villages and they're all over the world. And yeah. The, the, these sort of dyed-in-the-wool anthroposophists, they, they're like the workers there. And they all wear, you know, big wool sweaters and big wool uh, socks and undergarments. <laughs> really itchy. And he goes there and he says, you people with these long faces, like, who would ever want to live here? This is like horrible. <laughs> You're, you're like sad and depressed and you've got itchy underwear on and I don't think he said that. <laughs> he kept it real. Yeah. But, you know, and so you, you, a lot of, I think what you're saying is you see people and whether it's quote the truth or not, it's like, 
it, you may be right, but I don't want to be part of this. I don't want to live like that, all pissed off and angry and, and upset. And boy, I, I tell you, a lot of this is hitting, is really speaking big time to me because, you know, we, we <laughs> anyways, I won't get into that. But uh, this, is, this is for real. This, uh, this is amazing to hear this. Because, because what happened to you, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but you became conscious of this. And so you had to deal with it because you couldn't, essentially you couldn't live unless you actually worked on and became active about transforming the way you see life. Well, I began to appreciate the role of victimhood and victim consciousness in my patients experience of themselves as broken yes right so they bought into and colluded with the narrative that something was wrong with them and it felt good to be labeled almost any psychiatric patient will tell you the moment they are first diagnosed it's so validating right right? but but psychiatry is different it's not oh your pancreas is you know a little under functioning or your thyroid's a little overperforming. no psychiatry is there is something fundamentally wrong with you you right your behavior who you are in the world and maybe it's so wrong that you're dangerous not only to to you but maybe even other people right in the case of you know mania or psychosis or whatever you might be labeled with and so it's a very very deep cell that is cast on on these individuals by this occult um establishment and and i don't use those words lightly or even metaphorically um And so to break that spell requires a very uncomfortable ritual of personal um, salvation, right? And it involves taking responsibility for your choices so that you outsource agency nowhere, right? So that means there is no one to blame. You're not blaming your chemical imbalance or your genes or your parents or your doctor. And and many of these, these individuals are literally disabled by these medications. I mean, that's a lot of what Whitaker exposed is, is how these medications induce disability that in some cases is, you know, potentially even semi-permanent or not in my world permanent, but you know, that's some people's experience. And so, you know, you would think that they could get stuck where I was potentially going to get stuck in that rage against the machine, you know, kind of righteous anger space, but they will never, ever, ever heal. Um, and, And to come off of these medications can induce a withdrawal phenomenon that is so severe that I've been convinced that they are literally the most habit-forming chemicals on the planet. Oxycontin, alcohol, cocaine, heroin, forget it. They cannot hold a candle to 20 years of Prozac, literally. And so that process and getting through that dark night, which is physical, it's psychological, and it's spiritual, involves a resolution of this victimhood. And it's really difficult because when your limbic system is active, you go into that childlike state of why me? It's not fair, right? Why you're bad, you know? And we all do it. Would you would you say that that uh, victimhood is another word for the identification with the quote label of the disease? Yes. Those are similar. Yeah. And, and I would take it a little bit farther and say the identification with, with the wounded child, yeah. you know, with your child's psychology that is very black and white. It's good object, bad object, right? And 
you hold one and whatever is the problem outside of you holds the other um, or source of judgment or authority. And you, you're this tiny, tiny little powerless speck and there's something in your life that's big, 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 big and dominating, right? It could be your diagnosis. It could be your parents. For me, it's the government, <laughs> you know, whatever it might be. And to grow your speck and shrink the other one is years of personal work. I happen to believe in a kind of Maslow's hierarchy that it begins best with, with physical healing and resolution of very basic physical imbalances, whether it's blood sugar imbalance or micronutrient deficiencies or, you know, food antigenicity that's causing neuroinflammation or, you know, medication that's been really burdening you and begin there. And then the process of, you know, reclaiming yourself from all the other places you're giving your power away unfolds more naturally um, and somewhat more gracefully. But I had to start my own work in this realm if I was going to keep pace with the unexpected um, rebirth, you know, uh, trajectory that I was seeing, you know, emerge through each of my patients. I had not, I was doing the work with them of resolving my own victim stories and becoming conscious of the ways in which I was perpetuating my own experience of disconnection from myself and from other people and really from, you know, my. So that's very, yeah, that's very interesting. Let me just, again, ask if this is what you mean. So in other words, as you're, as you're seeing this in patience, you're coming to the realization that you can only take them as far as you yourself were willing to go. Yes. And, exactly. and I wonder then if that is one of the reasons why most doctors can't do it because they're essentially novices at this and they can't take people down this path because A, they don't know there's a path and B, they haven't been on the path because they don't even know there is a path. I had to experience a kind of, you know, I don't use labels like suicidality or mania or panic attacks. I don't use any of that. But I had to experience the kind of existential opting out energy. Like I, I am not doing this, this lifetime. I, I don't want to participate, right? I can't. Um, and all the things that we say to ourselves when we just want to press the reset button, which is the nature of suicidality. And to understand that it attends organically a rebirth process. It is a part of the alchemy of becoming who you are and always have been, right? Even though you didn't know what was going to happen next. Of course. No, it's no by definition, the wild unknown. Definition. And, and so unlike many of my colleagues, I have, have a lot of experience with active suicidality. Almost everyone in my practice has experienced it at some point. And I have never flinched to this day. And, you know, I would get paged and what, and I just never flinch. And when I was not afraid, my patients, I think would tell you, were, were somehow less afraid. And then they could experience whatever tumult was coming up, let it run its course. And then we all could get, you know, where we, where we needed to go. So again, it's like, these are archetypal, right? I don't need to have been on Prozac you know, I probably couldn't even handle it. You get what you can handle in this lifetime. And that is a, a courageous path, you know, that maybe I couldn't have handled. But, but the archetypal elements of the hero's journey, if you will, or the heroine's journey. Yeah, no, not, not everyone. And, and a vanishingly few actually, like you said, know that it even exists as 
um, a portal to self because socioculturally now with America's you know dominant hegemony, we don't even know about initiation rituals to adulthood. It's not it's not a part of the process um, of emancipating because an unemancipated adult is a very controllable, you know, civilian, yeah. right? So so this it's been washed out. Um, you know, indigenous cultures are the only keepers of, of this concept of initiation and ritual, community held ritual initiation, because, you know, maybe I was one set of eyes on my patients telling them you're okay when they felt anything but, but imagine you have an entire community telling you you're okay as you're, you know, facing your death fears at 17 years old or whatever it is. And any birthing mother, you know, knows that that is also an option uh, if we want to encounter that um, kind of realm, that liminal space between the old you and the new you. But how how many of us are having natural births these days? You know, yeah. not in in you know the temple of the um, medical orthodoxy, but at home and with our people. And so so it's all part of what we're awakening from, or remembering right now is that you know oh okay I didn't I didn't remember that I had to go through these experiences in order to become an adult. All right, this is, uh, I, I tell you, I can't remember a time, an hour that I've actually had so much to think about here. Oh, thank, is, you. Uh, thank you, I think. <laughs> or not. I never hear from you again. <laughs> I, I must admit, uh, it, it's, it's like hearing, it's like hearing my own voice saying, you know what, Tom, you should have been doing this a long time ago. Well, okay, so Tom, there's something that amazingly in an hour has not come up, which is kind of my um, <laughs> secret sauce, although it doesn't always feel that way, which is my relationship, right? So my relationship with Sayer has been the most powerfully transformative force in my life to date. And that's saying something because motherhood is a big one and my you know medical awakening is another one activism you name it but when you fall in love with someone who has totally complementary um wounds right and defensive structures we have a lot in common a lot in common yeah. however when we are you know charged or triggered or afraid or hurt we get into this like like ram's horns locking right and and you know where i am am totally in my intellectual defenses and piercing and cutting and cruel you know he is withdrawn and you know with expressed emotion and it's just we we are totally um built seemingly to remember what it is to truly love Right, because there are times I I am so madly in love with this man to this day for so many years, and there are times where I could kill him. I feel that much hate, right, and disgust, and it's it's really what has helped me to understand hate is not the opposite of love. Apathy is the opposite of love. Something yeah. I almost never feel with him, right? But hate is is this experience. It's an opportunity right to to feel the presence of love that's not visible because in those moments it's not visible i have to remember it i have to remember that it's there and i have to tell myself kelly 
you love this man. You adore this man. Everything about him. Not, right? Not All right, of then, no. right I, mean, I have to do it in that moment because I don't feel it because yeah. my heart is closed. And when my heart is closed, it's only my defenses. And my defenses create a world of hell for me and others, but chiefly for me. And so that relationship Wait, your over and over again. create a world of what? Hell, like a, like a hell, pain, hell. you know, for me and, and, and for others. And that's why this idea, this mercenary concept of, you know, I'm going to do what's good for me. You know, I've come to believe that what's actually good for me, really good for me, may not always be what, you know, I imagine it is, but is also good for him. So yeah. there is something that is, and that's, and maybe what's good for me is good for the world, right? Yeah. So maybe, you know, me being me and standing in my truth, it, in, in a way that is, is clarified of all of these shadow projections and all this unmetabolized rage, I just want to pay forward, you know, into the system that I'm judging and condemning. Maybe I can find something that's good for all of us. Um, and that's where I've kind of come to this idea of like celebrating um, health, right? Who's against that? <laughs> right? It's very subversive in a powerful way. And it's good for me, right? Because the other, the other methods maybe aren't. But my relationship has been twisted me into a thousand knots, broken me into a million pieces. And it's, you know, it's like that Japanese ceramic art of like putting it back with gold. Um, and so that has been, I think, an accelerator. Not, I think it's been the accelerator. You know, I'm in my early 40s and I know that I've done encountered spaces um, that you know many do later in life when you don't have the charnel ground of this this particular kind of relationship to really um, you know heat up that that uh, alchemical cauldron you know this also reminds me very much of the concepts of nonviolent communication and restorative justice because having been through that enough what you realize, is that if you're in conflict with somebody, it's fundamentally because you have the same issue to resolve. Correct. And it's only when you get that, that you can actually resolve the conflict. And even you can see this with, you know, I've seen Marshall and others too, who tell the stories about sitting with like an army officer who literally killed these, you know, native women in Africa's children. And, they, they come to this place where they see that they were, uh, as hard as it sounds, and it's an excruciatingly painful process, they see that they were both just trying to, you know, meet their needs for safety. And it's just, it's just profound when you, when you see life like this, and that it's just a celebration at the, at the roots. I mean, there's a lot of pain and a lot of tragedy involved but fundamentally we're talking about celebrating life it's whenever we can um resolve dehumanizing tendencies yeah. we can get there so quickly yeah. right because it's only when we are are in the the very um pain propagating realm of dehumanization that you know we have that distance and we can other Right. Yeah. And what's, what's interesting, and I'm sure you'll agree with psychiatry, it's like an othering machine. Yeah. Right? Because if, 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 if Tommy, you know, let's say Tommy was gang raped every day of his life, you know, for, for, for five years. And, you know, then he is trying to make it on his own as a teenager and he picks up, you know, heroin or, or whatever. 
Long story short, now he's got a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, oppositional defiant disorder. He's on six meds and he's 22, right? If, if I can look at Tommy's diagnoses, right? And that's how we do it. You remember in, in, in the hospital, right? Is it's like in room 204C is the hep C case yeah, or whatever. Yeah. It's not the story, far from it. Sure, but right. if I can, if I can condense Tommy's entire experience of his own humanity into one label, let's say bipolar disorder, I don't have to feel what it is to be Tommy yeah. not for one second. I only have to relate to him through the impersonalized, dehumanized yeah. label. And I don't have to feel, remember that distress I didn't want to feel at MIT. I don't have to feel it. Yeah. Right. And so our distress tolerance is so massive that we think a fever is going to kill us. You know, we think that any adversity is like some mark of shame. And we have no concept of how to work with the alchemy of our challenges, of our difficult emotions, um, you know, or, or to begin to truly understand what it is to own, you know, this self so that we understand other people as having their own journey. Yeah. Right. Because like you said, it's like that Sayers always referencing, I think it's a Navajo proverb, you know, you can't wake someone pretending to be asleep. Right. So so these people who are in various stages of denial or just don't even know what it is to heal on this level or start to walk this path. What are we going to be angry with them? We're going to fight with them. Yeah. And now, yeah, but, you know, one of the things that I've come to is all these symptoms that you're talking about that are mislabeled as diseases are really better seen as the best strategies that person could figure out how to do yes. given the situation that they're in. Exactly. You're poisoned, you put it in a tumor, you know? That's, it's right. not, that's a very clever strategy. If you're, you know, need to rest, you pull down your thyroid and then you, you're tired. Uh, you know, I, you see that over and over. That is what we mislabel as sickness. I love that you get that um, and see that and probably have for many more years than I. And, you know, I wrote a very apparently controversial article on alcoholism a number of years ago and that incurred a lot of um, negative feedback, shall yeah. we say. And it was, it's, the premise is mostly that I don't believe in alcoholism as, right. as a disease, right? And because I don't believe in any diseases um, in, in the conventional definition, the way you don't, you know, as well. Um, but my, my premise was, it works. Yeah. It works for people until it doesn't, right? But it's also that idea of the the atomized self, the mercenary self, the childlike self that says, well, this is working for me and maybe it's actually not working for others. How do I get to a, a, a version of myself that works for me and for everyone else? And that process of harmonizing into the resonance of the collective, I don't know that any of us have figured that out yet, but you know, that's all it is. It's just a, a stage of compensation that actually is working. It's, it is working, right? Yeah. So why are we calling it the problem? And that's why so many people who recover and go to rehab end up on what? On psych meds, yeah. right? Because you haven't resolved the root of anything and you've pathologized the behavior and then this liquid, right? You've pathologized the beverage, but what about the, the work on the, the ownership, right? And, and not blaming anything um, and beginning to really understand how to hold how much sensitivity so many so-called addicts 
uh, have, right? Tremendously sensitive, empathic people often who just don't know how to work with their energy. That's why I call, you know, so many people who end up on psych meds, canaries in the coal mine. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're rightly sensitive, as Krishnamurti would say, you know, to, to, to everything that's wrong right. uh, with how we're doing it. Yes. All right. We could go on forever, but I think, uh, so here we are. Uh, any particular suggestions on how to help people navigate this current climate, you know, like, especially, you know, with family members and, and people who are saying things, you should do this and you have to believe that and wear masks and wash your hands 25 times a day and all this stuff. How do, how do you, what, what can you say to people in that situation? Because we're all in that situation. Yeah. So I've devoted a ton of um, my energy to this very question because my higher self knows that information exchange and information warfare is not the way. Right. It's not the way, right? And you and I, you know, and our, our beloved colleagues, I mean, we could fill a room with scientific references that undermine every aspect of what has been operationalized, yeah. um, you know, from the medical perspective and, and onward. And it's just, it's not gonna change anyone's mind because this isn't about a lack of information. And from my perspective, it is about, um, you know, what we've been talking about for the past hour. It is about the, the process of healing uh, our traumas. And until and if we recognize that they exist, um, and, and, and we recognize that that victimhood, whether it's on a body consciousness level, like my, my body's frail and weak and I need help protecting it, Right. Uh, or, or whether it's on a personality or an emotional level, that that is um, what is going to keep us in a loop of suffering, right? But because we're all at different places in that, that journey, the reason that somebody is wearing a mask when I'm not doesn't have to do necessarily, almost ever, right, about that they didn't read the literature that undermines mask safety and efficacy, or that they have not interrogated germ theory to know that the whole concept is irrelevant, you know, to anything that is, we would call health. Um, it's not about that, right? It's about compliance and what it means to be seen as good, yeah. you know, and what it, what it means to uh, in this case, wow, the PSYOP is so ingenious, right? That they've co-opted our empathic urge, our compassion yeah. to say that what this is actually what it means to be good to others, to yeah. serve others before you serve your selfish self, right? Yeah. So you're playing on that self-loathing that's already there, that self-judgment that's been internalized and, 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 and right, inviting uh, compliance with this agenda. So that's why the only thing we really can do, it's like be the change, right? The only thing we can do is identify what your true values are, do the best you can representing those as courageously as you can by soothing and self-regulating that inner child, right? So what that literally looks like is if I am walking down the street I'm not wearing a mask and 
somebody says, which actually interestingly has, has not happened, um, but I know what's going on. Somebody says to me, uh, how dare you walk around like that? Put your mask on, right? What might happen? My heart might start to race. I might start to grab for what to do and, and some smart thing to say, right? Um, and what is my job? What is my allegiance in that moment? It's to myself, not to some cause, not to science, not to anything. It's to myself. So what is the most loving thing for me to do for myself in that moment? For some of us, it may be to establish the boundary. And uh, you know, sometimes asking a question is a way to, to shift the power dynamic in your favor. You know, So you might say, do you always talk to strangers like that? Right, because then the 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 shift is is back in their court. It's and surprising, and it can disrupt the freeze, right? Because because of our traumas, we we sometimes freeze and then we self-flagellate because we didn't show up the way we could have to defend ourselves, right? right. So for some, it might be to establish that boundary, but for others, I'm one of these others. It may be to say something like, "Thank you," you know, and walk away, and then I can speak to my my little scared little girl inside and tell her everything's cool, right? Because there is a part of us that is always okay. I could have my limb being sawed off and that part of me is okay, completely undisturbed. And I can align with that part or I can align with the part that is the victim, right? And that's holding all of those old energies of emotion that actually are not even real in the here and now that I've brought in my backpack of trauma to the moment, right? And so it's my job to self-regulate. And there's so many ways to do it. You know, you can, it can be as simple as taking a minute and looking around you and, and saying, I'm, everything's okay. The, the wall's here, the wall's there, the wall's there. My body's okay, I'm okay, right? I'm, in this moment, the world may be not okay in the meta sense, but in this moment, I'm actually okay. Yeah. Right. It can look like, you know, journaling. It can look like screaming into a pillow. That's what it's looked like a lot for me recently. Um, it, whatever it looks like for you to allow your feelings to exist. This is not self-suppression. Allow them their own reality. They exist because you, they were inspired, you know, so many years ago. Allow them to exist, but then take the wheel of your own car and you drive the car. Yeah. Right, you make the decision once you can align with that part of you that knows it's not about me what's going on. Yeah. Right? The decisions that Gates and Soros and whoever that's, that's not about me. It's not about me. Right? My feelings, my anger, my fear, my grief are mine. Right? They're mine. And they were incubated for years and years and years before COVID ever came on the scene, whatever we want to call yeah. it, right? And so I think just a reminder. Um, deal with reality. Yeah, deal with what's in front of you and interrogate yourself for victimhood so that you can align with your empowerment. And that sounds fancy, but it usually looks just like, you know, I always like looked down into my right inside my body. Like that's my visualization, like, like going inward sometimes for 30 seconds. This is not some major spiritual exercise, okay? And acknowledging what you feel, like, oh, I feel scared, <laughs> you know? Uh, and telling yourself, it's okay. You're okay. You are okay. And that could be a mantra all day long. You are okay. 
And that is where self-regulation begins so that we don't pay forward our traumas, right? And so that we are not capturable yeah. because the more okay you know that you already are, you're already safe. Yeah. The more okay you know everything is because you understand this is all by design, meaning on a divine level, right? This is all unfolding exactly how it's supposed to because we got to work out this polarity stuff, right? We're not ready for the oneness. That doesn't mean anything when, when the shit hits when the fan. you do that, then you can think. Yes. And then you, in self-possession, can decide what is the most loving thing for you to do for you. But remember, it's no one's job to change anyone's mind. It is no one's job. You can't traumatize somebody into not being in trauma. No. I think that's... <laughs> You're growing the field of trauma by doing that. Growing the field of trauma. Right. It's a good lesson for all of us. Kelly, I can't thank you enough. This has been really profound. I, I just, I'm so happy that people are going to be able to see this. this you, you've learned a lot. And I can hardly wait to see where you're going to be in another 10 years. So I hope I'll, I be, I'll be in the mud of my own stuff for sure, always. But no, it's really an honor. And as much as I know it's my job to witness myself and validate myself, it still feels really, really, really good to yes. you know share such um, so many commonalities with you and share such a worldview. And I mean, yeah. you're such an inspiration to me too. So it, it really is, uh, it's wonderful to, to be on the path together. Great. All right. Thank you. And we will be in touch. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Bye-bye.